recording? Yes, we are. Go for it. Hey. Hey, Sam. Hey, is that Ellie? Hey, Caroline. I think Jack's here too. Hello. All right, so let's just dive into it. Uh, right now, during the pandemic, lots of people are thinking about what comes next. How is history being shaped by the coronavirus? There are a lot of open questions about how the world is going to be transformed, and we wanted to take a step back and look at a very different public health crisis from a very different era, the bubonic plague. And no, we're not talking about the Middle Ages. We're talking about the turn of the 20th century. This was the third bubonic plague pandemic in history, and it emerged out of Western China in the 1890s. Eventually, it wound its way around the globe, killing around 12 million people until it ended in the 1950s. But even though it spread to every continent, the impact of this plague was incredibly uneven. As we are seeing right now with coronavirus, public health crises have a way of really throwing into sharp relief the inequalities and tensions that already exist in societies, which makes them particularly interesting sites of analysis. So we've decided to look at how the bubonic plague played out in two cities on either side of the Pacific, Hong Kong in 1894 and San Francisco in 1900. As students in Amy Chasko's History of Housing Justice class, we are particularly interested in how the plague interacted with urban housing issues. How did segregation exacerbate inequality? And how was urban space restructured and reimagined by city governments in response to the plague? So much to cover. I know. Ellie and Sam, do you want to take it away with Hong Kong? Yeah, let's get into it. So it's May of 1894 in Hong Kong, and all of a sudden a clerk at the National Hospital has a version of the bubonic plague. What a great way to wrap up the end of the 19th century. I know. And that diagnosis changed everything for the next six months. 2,679 people were hospitalized, and 2,486 people died. That's a 93% mortality rate. But of course, the effects on the city lasted much, much longer, and it wasn't a one-time thing. Like the flu, the plague came back to Hong Kong every year for decades, killing tens of thousands of people through the first half of the 20th century. We know what it's like to watch the speed of a pandemic blossom. Chaos ensues unevenly, and various authorities try to impose order. What did the government of Hong Kong do when it found out the plague had beset the city? The government's interventions weren't quite as linear as we might imagine. Unlike when COVID hit the US, we can't refer to a couple of weeks in March as the end-all be-all turning point for policy and public practice. We know now that bubonic plague doesn't actually spread from person to person. It spreads via infected fleas that are harbored by rats. But remember, science wasn't as advanced in the 1890s and people had a different perception of plagues, what they were, how they spread, and how to stop them. Yeah, that's a good point. It's easy to assume a modern day understanding of disease, but back then the science just wasn't there yet. We actually talked to Professor James Colgrove of Columbia's Melman School of Public Health about Hi, this. Hi, how are you? Hey, Ellie, I'm good, thanks. Let me get some light on. We asked him how the scientific understanding of bubonic plague and the spread of disease was changing at the time. So this was in the midst of a very significant paradigm shift, a scientific paradigm shift that you're probably familiar with called the bacteriological revolution. Um, really a, 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 um, a very significant change in the way that people um, understood 
how diseases spread and where they came from. So this started to happen in this, this knowledge started to emerge in the sort of the 1860s and 1870s out of scientific advances in microscopy and cell culturing. Plague was the, you know, the bacteria, the microbe that caused it had been identified. And the, the mode of transmission was mostly known and accepted. But, you know, the thing about when there is a scientific paradigm shift is that the, the things that people used to believe, had believed for centuries, don't just suddenly go away. They kind of, they persist. People may accept, accept the new knowledge about bacteria and then, and then later about viruses, but all of the old associations of disease as a product of, of filthy environments and bad air, um, a product of strange foreigners that we don't like, a product of, of sort of God's punishment on the wicked, all of those beliefs persisted as much as people may have accepted the new scientific knowledge. Um, you know, I'd argue that those beliefs are very much alive and well and with us in 2020. You can imagine how much, how prevalent they were only 20 years into the bacteriological revolution. That definitely seems to be the case now too. We're going to get into racist policies in a minute, but with that background on the scientific and social understanding of disease, let's get back to the government interventions of the time. So the government must have done something, right? The rigid colonial hierarchy that the British installed in Hong Kong must have meant that imposing order was a priority. That's true. And Hong Kong is a really dense city, so the interventions were relatively confined. Authorities weren't dealing with vast swaths of land. They quickly realized that isolation was one way of stemming the spread. So a floating hospital was set up in the harbor to house the infected. This set off some hysteria, though, as the government sent troops around the city to locate the sick in a pretty forceful manner. Density is disease's best friend, and Hong Kong's houses had poor ventilation and sanitation. The government thought it had to start thinking of ways to change these conditions. I can't imagine everyone's ventilation and sanitation were equally bad, though. It's not like the government could impose equally sweeping changes everywhere. Of course not. Poor and Chinese Hong Kongers suffer the worst. This is the classic 19th century story, with the same basic contours as cholera in London or yellow fever in Rio. The poor were confined to the neighborhoods with the unhealthiest living conditions, so they suffered the worst. Only 11 Europeans succumbed to this disease, while 70 to 90% of those infected were Chinese residents. Even at the most conservative estimate, that's egregious. It dwarfs the discrepancy in COVID mortality rates among Black and white Americans. It sounds like what you're saying is, to understand the inequality of the plague, we have to understand the inequality of the built environment, especially the way it was planned. Exactly. Think about one of the neighborhoods that suffered the worst, the Taiping Shan locality, which sat high up on a hill on the western side of Hong Kong Island. It was home to mostly Chinese residents who were relocated there by the government when the British took over Hong Kong in the 1840s. People in Taiping Shan lived in crowded housing, you know the scene, with poor ventilation and sanitation. The government decided the capacity for super spreading was too great, so it evicted residents from 8.5 acres of land and demolished their homes. This was called the Taiping Shan Resumption Ordinance. Wow. Yeah. And they ended up building a park where those buildings once stood. It's called Blake Garden, and it still stands in Hong Kong. It's airy to think of a public space where the state once eradicated one of its most vulnerable communities. It sounds like another version of the age-old story. In extreme times, governments suspend rights, 
or at least veer from their standard course and do something extreme to their citizens or subjects. The philosopher Giorgio Agarbin calls this the state of exception, although he got in a whole lot of trouble for calling Italy's response to COVID a state of exception. Exactly. And in his book, Contagious Divides, the historian Nyan Shah calls this phenomenon epidemic logic. He writes, the specter of epidemic pushed forms of regulatory intervention into the lives of bodies and populations which might, in other circumstances, appear excessive. So what other excessive things did the government of Hong Kong do? In that same year, 1894, the government issued the Closed Houses and Insanitary Dwellings Ordinance. This one was a bit tamer. Authorities wanted to restrict more super spreader housing from being constructed. So it limited buildings to heights like 25 feet or 76 feet, depending on the size of the blocks they were on. Buildings had to have 400 cubic feet of airspace per resident and 30 square feet of floor area. The hope was that overcrowding in these new spaces would be difficult or impossible. These sound like turn of the century ordinances in New York, like the Dumbbell Tenement Act of 1906. The point was to minimize crowding and maximize access to light and air for the city's poorest residents, especially on the Lower East Side, which was the most densely populated neighborhood in the world. Bubonic plague didn't bring those changes about, but government mandated changes to the built environment seemed to be a common denominator. That's a great point. And it makes me think of how the built environment in both cities reified deep inequalities, but we'll get to that in a minute. Right, you were telling me about ordinances. Right, they really got down to the nitty gritty. The government even regulated the construction of housing drains. Bubonic plague doesn't spread through water like yellow fever does, but officials still subscribe to miasma theory, the idea that disease spread through everything dirty and rotten. So the goal was to clean everything up. There's something so distinctly modern and modernist about that. Modern architects and urban planners thought that they could change society for the better. And one way to do that was to impose order and cleanliness. In the 19th century, urban planners teamed up with governments from Paris to Buenos Aires to accomplish this. All of those drastically transformative pro projects were rife with racism and classism. Who was deemed dirty? What sections of the city had to be cleaned up? Who were all those beautiful new public buildings really for? This world historical story is set in the 19th and 20th centuries. So the turn of the century is often a really interesting time to study cities. The fact that the plague struck in Hong Kong in 1894 makes it doubly interesting because it allows us to take the temperature of ideas about the built environment and public health and how they coordinated. One of the clearest examples of that intersection is the literal nexus of the built environment and health, the hospital. Some of the clearest examples of this modernist approach you're talking about cropped up in Hong Kong hospitals that were built to deal with the plague. The slaughter housing hospital, for example, was really austere. Its architects designed it to, to be kept well-ordered and clean with concrete floors and brick walls. And it was supposed to change Hong Kong society, not only by curing plague victims, but also by modeling what cleanliness and order should look like. It was morbidly aspirational. But let's not get distracted. Back to ordinances. Right. The government continued to create sweeping regulations until 1898, when it admitted that they weren't really working. The plague still came to Hong Kong every year, and the government couldn't figure out what to do. Jump to 1903, when it decided to issue another round of ordinances. It increased the mandatory floor area for residents from 30 to 50 feet, and the airspace from 400 to 550 cubic feet. That was called the Public Health and Building Ordinance. They're almost running out of names for these laws by now. Why did the government have to keep trying again and again? What wasn't working? That's a good question. 
Public health ordinances are fraught, especially when they address housing. The laws proved extremely difficult to enforce across the whole city, and there was significant backlash. People called the sanitary board corrupt and accused it of eliminating affordable housing for all the people who needed it. By 1911, Hong Kong was home to almost half a million people, and about 75% of them lived in overcrowded areas. Clearly, the ordinances weren't perfect. World War I opened a whole new can of worms in 1914, and so did the Great Depression in the 1930s, which drastically limited Hong Kong's public budget. The 20th century was a complicated time. You mentioned the repeated increases in space per resident, but what about buildings themselves? Good question. In 1935, the government updated the rules for building size yet again. Stories could be no more than 35 feet in depth to allow ample light to filter in. Buildings also had to have adequate bathrooms with 35 square feet of floor area. These interventions sound piecemeal. Did the government ever consider something broader? They did, but not until after World War II. In 1954, the government inaugurated an affordable housing scheme for the entire city. And while it wasn't entirely successful, it was at the level of state intervention that we really associate with those years. That period sounds like urban renewal in the US. Exactly. Even if they only mollify major inequalities, affordable housing schemes at least try to address them. In Hong Kong, there was simply a shortage of housing, sometimes as many as 35,000 apartments too few. It sounds like that's partially because of the rigid codes buildings had to live up to, and we can trace those back to the plague of 1894. Right. 1894 didn't change everything. There were some building codes before then too, but the plague set Hong Kong on a very specific trajectory that lasted decades, well into what we might call modern times. So the plague must tell us something powerful about inequalities in the city too, right? I think so. As a British colony, Hong Kong was deeply segregated. Remember Taiping Shan, site of the mass eviction in 1894? That was a predominantly Chinese neighborhood. Some Chinese Hong Kongers fled the city out of fear of eviction or watching their homes be demolished. The British even deployed the military. For example, they sent the Shropshire Regiment, or as they were known by Hong Kong residents, the Whitewash Brigade. These soldiers were deployed to neighborhoods suspected of violating public health ordinances. They inspected homes, they reported any homes they found wanting, which could result in forced disinfection or destruction. In total, they displaced over 7,000 people and demolished over 350 homes. You can guess which residents were targeted. What other roles did racism play? One of the most explicitly racist ordinances was the European District Reservation Ordinance. They didn't even try to hide it in the name. That ordinance forbade the construction of Chinese tenements in Hong Kong's wealthy British neighborhoods. In those districts, anti-Chinese racism had captured the popular imagination. British Hong Kongers called the plague a fundamentally Chinese or non-Western problem. They called it the, quote, Oriental Plague and the Asiatic Pestilence. They justified the horribly disproportionate impacts by creating an erroneous link between Chinese Hong Kongers and the disease itself. They blamed the Chinese for being dirty and uncivilized and for listening to quack doctors. The Hong Kong governor at the time, William Robinson, blamed the disproportionate impact on what he called the filthy habits of life amongst the Chinese and claimed that the quote, unsanitary living conditions of the Chinese were threats to the Western civilized way of life. I'm sure that justified the entrenched segregation. Ideology and built environment are in vicious chicken and egg cycles and the unequal mortality rates were actually not just results of racist ideology, but fodder for it. Racist scientists used Hong Kong as an example of white people being more immune to disease and therefore superior. 
this legitimized spatial segregation. This sounds like Bracecroft. Barbara Fields, a professor of history at Columbia, coined that phrase. It refers to a rhetorical phenomenon in, a race, in racist societies where race is cited as the ultimate cause of something, which reifies race, even though it's an invention. Of course, race wasn't the cause of the unequal mortality rates. Racism was responsible. A racist-built environment was responsible. What about classism? Pretty much wherever the plague struck, it disproportionately affected poor people. And to use Professor Field's line of thinking, class craft played a role. People used the disproportionate impacts on the poor as an explanation for their medical misfortune, when, of course, the classism that made them vulnerable in the first place was really culpable. It's striking to hear how scientists were responsible for so much of this ideology, given that we think of them as agents of human progress. Professor Colgrove had a great point about this. Yeah, I mean, public health, uh public health folks are human <laughs> and, and um, you know, at any given moment, people's beliefs may be a little contradictory and incoherent and, and not um, internally consistent. And also, I mean, again, the, I, I would emphasize the, the newness of this scientific knowledge. And so, yes, we had identified the microbe, but, you know, there are still many questions remaining about you know, could it be spreading in other ways that we don't know, or, you know, we haven't, we haven't observed it in all possible conditions. The idea of, of disease as a product of dangerous foreigners is just, it has this really powerful primal force. It's just an incredibly powerful idea that you see throughout history, right? So like, the Spanish called syphilis the French disease and the French called syphilis the Spanish disease. Like, it's just like the idea of you blame those other people over there. It's like such a visceral reaction. And, um, and you know, the Chinese were subject of particular prejudice. They were seen by, by particularly white Westerners on the West Coast as being sort of particularly unassimilable with language and customs that were particularly strange. Exactly. One of the most insidious scientific beliefs at the time viewed Hong Kong as a petri dish filled with plague bacteria. Adherence to this belief blamed inherently dirty soil for the plague's proliferation. Of course, the jump from inherently dirty soil to inherently dirty people is an easy one. But what about the bubonic plague in Europe? In the words of Ruth Wilson Gilmore, that racist science will sound strange to, quote, anyone who knows anything about the history of the world. The government took that racist theory and ran with it. Hence the evictions and the imposition of order in the name of cleanliness. And in maybe the harshest example, the government remembered that the Great Fire of London eliminated the plague there. So they sanitized overcrowded buildings by burning them to the ground. In Taiping Shan, officials thought the fire would clean that inherently dirty soil too. That reminds me of a quote I came across in the archives from an edition of the Times of India printed in 1903 in response to the Hong Kong fires. It reads, What has become of the thousand of souls rendered homeless when these huge blocks were bitten out of the heart of Sunland? The answer lies in the appalling overcrowding now found in the quarters undisturbed. Rents have gone up 50 and 75%. Where one family occupied a room, there are now two or three.
So now we're going to jump forward a few years to follow the plague as it makes its way across the Pacific. This is San Francisco in the year 1900. This was towards the end of a period of really rapid growth for the city. Trade was booming and you had tons of immigrants moving there to find work. And one of the largest immigrant groups in San Francisco were the Chinese, who were concentrated in a district right in the center of the city. So let's set the scene a little bit. At the turn of the 20th century, residents of San Francisco's Chinatown were living in very poor conditions. They were in overcrowded residences, living with poor ventilation, surrounded by garbage, rats, and other vermin. So it's March 6, 1900. A city physician gets a call. Wing Chung Ging, a 41-year-old Chinese lumber merchant, has died in the basement of the Globe Hotel in Chinatown. And at this time, only white physicians could issue a death certificate, so this was a routine occurrence. Wing had been sick for a while, and the Chinese doctors didn't think there was anything out of the ordinary about his death. But when the city physician examined his body, he discovered some suspicious swellings in the groin area, telltale signs of the bubonic plague. For the first time in history, the plague had arrived in North America. The Board of Health wasted no time in responding to this suspected case. The plague diagnosis wouldn't actually be confirmed yet for another several days, but they called in the chief of police to implement that accordance and a tear around the perimeter of Chinatown. Like, they literally took rope and blocked off the streets leading out of the district to prevent any Asians from leaving. This is how the San Francisco Chronicle described the scene on March 8, 1900, two days after the bubonic plague took its first American victim. The full import of the blockade was not appreciated until about 5 o'clock yesterday morning when the scores of cooks, porters, and various other help employed by white people throughout the city sought to leave Chinatown to return to their work. Knowing nothing of the blockade, the Chinese walked calmly forth only to be confronted by the inexorable policemen and the ropes. Instead of just quarantining the building where Wang had died, the entire neighborhood was locked down. And any white people who were caught in the quarantine zone were allowed to evacuate. So you can really see how, in the view of the Board of Health, Asians and the spaces in which they dwelled were generically equated with the disease, while whites were seen to be somehow immune, just like in Hong Kong. Even though a single case had been discovered, all Asians were seen to be equally a threat. This was a moment when medical knowledge was really in a state of transition. You had these significant breakthroughs like the discovery of the plague bacillus by Alexander Yersin in 1894. There was this gradual shift from the older environmental theory of disease to germ theory. But doctors still didn't really understand how plague was transmitted. They had a sense that rats were connected in some way, but they still thought that it was transmitted through the air into the lungs or stomach. And in trying to make sense of it, white Eurocentric biases shaped their theories. In fact, many American medical officials at this time rather pompously believed that a plague outbreak would be impossible in the United States. On March 7th, the day the quarantine was implemented, the San Francisco Call published these two quotes from the Surgeon Generals of the Army and Navy. The climate conditions of the United States preclude the possibility of the plague ever getting within the country. It is a disease peculiar to the Orient and seldom, if ever, attacks Europeans. The quarantine service is so efficient that the bubonic plague could never attain a foothold in the United States, even though the conditions were favorable. I don't know of a single case of a plague in the United States. It is a disease which flourishes only where there is dirt and filth. 
dirt and filth. We can see here that the older environmental theory of disease still has a foothold in the medical discourse. But some public health officials were shifting towards a theory of disease that focused on diet and heredity as the main reasons why Asians appeared to be more susceptible to the plague. For example, Walter Wyman, he was the Surgeon General of the U.S. Public Health Service who was overseeing San Francisco's quarantine, speculated that the plague might be a rice eater's disease. He thought that the lack of protein in their diet made Asians more vulnerable. So, dirt and filth was starting to be seen as not quite as important, although it still definitely had a place in the discourse. But these new germ theories actually further reified the racialized pathology of the disease. Now, it was no longer just about their environment. The Asians and Asian culture itself were seen to be a public health threat. Of course, Chinatown was particularly vulnerable to disease. As we said before, the conditions in Chinatown were pretty bad. People were packed into tight living spaces. There was a ton of garbage around that rats thrived on. But the thing is, when you read how city officials and the press talked about the conditions of Chinatown at this time, they almost always blamed Chinese habits. Like, here's what the mayor of San Francisco had to say in response to Chinese objections to the quarantine. I desire to say that they are fortunate with the unclean habits of their coolies and their filthy hovels to be permitted to remain within the corporate limits of any American city. In an economic sense, their presence has been and is a great injury to the working classes. And in a sanitary sense, they are a constant menace to the public health. No one ever brought up the white landlords who owned the buildings in Chinatown. Shouldn't they have been responsible for maintaining their buildings? Wasn't it the city's responsibility to maintain clean streets? And there was no consideration of the main reason that Chinatown was so densely populated, which was that racial and class discrimination prevented them from living anywhere else. There's this quote from the geographer Susan Craddock's book, City of Plagues, that I think speaks really well to this. Use is an accusation toward the already deviant. Disease intensifies the rhetoric of hatred, fear, and blame utilized against undesirable populations. It shifts the quality of this rhetoric from the socially construed to the medically legitimated, from a vaguely if forcefully defined rationale to a rational basis for surveillance, control, and exclusion. That brings us back to the quarantine. So overnight, Chinatown was blockaded from the rest of the city and people were not happy about it. This was completely unprecedented, and so, of course, the Chinese and Japanese residents were pretty shocked and angry to be cut off from their livelihoods based on a single unconfirmed case. In the Chengsei Yapo, the Chinese-language daily newspaper, the paper's editor argued that only the infected building should be marked with a yellow flag and surrounded by warning tape. I think it's important to point out here that not only did the quarantine essentialize the Chinese and Japanese as disease carriers, it also failed to offer any protection to their community against the potential threat of disease. Here's Professor Colgrove. In public health, um, there's a, a principle in implementing quarantine called the safe and habitable environment, which is this idea that if you must subject people to quarantine, you have this ethical obligation to to do it, to give them an environment where they're, you're not making them worse than they would be otherwise. Um, and certainly in, in San Francisco, that didn't happen. The residents of Chinatown were not the only ones upset about the quarantine, however. 
White business people and the local media were also outraged by the Board of Health, refusing to believe that there was any bubonic plague in San Francisco. For one thing, many white business owners and wealthy people relied on Chinese labor. And so here's this incredibly condescending poem published in the San Francisco Examiner on March 7th that gives you a good sense of their perspective. Score not the humble Chinaman, throw not his uses down. For as I live, we miss him when he stays in Chinatown. When happy Yip and Yellow Sin quit the domestic scene, we have to do the work ourselves and damn the quarantine. You realize that even though the Chinese were scorned and segregated to one neighborhood, they were really an essential part of the economic fabric of the city at large. Even more than the loss of labor power, though, businessmen were concerned with the damage that a perceived outbreak of plague would do to the city's commercial reputation. Here's the president of the local merchants association quoted in the call. The extent to which merchants have suffered may never be estimated. This is a time of year when strangers are inclined to visit this place, but thousands have been turned away by the plague rumors and their money spent elsewhere. And all of these economic concerns were amplified by a general distrust of the Board of Health and of bacteriological science in general. Two of the main daily newspapers at the time, The Call and The Chronicle, both accused the Board of Health they actually referred to them as the health gang of working up a bubonic plague scare as a political scheme to get more funding from the city. This is what the Chronicle had to say about it after the plague diagnosis had officially been confirmed by a lab. The present state of bacteriological science does not afford the means of a reliable diagnosis of the bubonic plague, and that no matter what any physician may say, there is no evidence that there was ever a cause of genuine bubonic plague in this city. So, thanks to all this backlash, the initial quarantine was lifted only a couple days after it was implemented. But this was only the beginning. Yep. Four more cases were discovered in May, and the city tried, mostly unsuccessfully, to force Chinatown residents to take an untested experimental vaccine. There was an order forbidding Chinese and Japanese from leaving San Francisco, which Chinese merchants successfully challenged in court. And then another even longer quarantine in June which was once again struck down by the court. There's a lot more we could say about these legal battles and the various conflicting interests at stake here, but we don't want to get too sidetracked from the question of urban housing. Suffice it to say, the Chinese community was victorious in making a claim to move freely through urban space without being subjected to an unnecessary and racist quarantine. They certainly fared much better than the residents of Hong Kong's Taiping Shan, whose community was raised to the ground but this outcome was hardly inevitable. Just listen to what one property developer had to say about this issue in the summer of 1900. I don't care how it is done, but I am earnestly in favor of getting the Chinese out of this district. I think it is one of the best parts of San Francisco, too good for the Chinese who are non-progressive and unappreciative. It would be an easy manner to set apart a town for them somewhere along the South Shore, where they could be by themselves unmolested by the Americans. Let the residents of Chinatown, the dissolute and the depraved, be moved elsewhere so they will not block the march of progress and civilization. Yikes. And this was not just some fringe take. When you look at the newspapers from this time, you see a lot of white merchants and property owners who were expressing similar opinions. If not to remove the Chinese, at least to make it over by widening 
if not to remove the Chinese, at least to make it over by widening its streets and filling in the underground passageways. Remember, Chinatown was and still is located right in the center of downtown San Francisco, so it was desirable property. Plus, its central location made it seem more threatening to surrounding neighborhoods. Even though you had this contradictory idea that it was only an Asian disease, it was still very much seen as a threat somehow. So you could see that the supposed connection between Chinatown and disease justified and legitimized real estate interests in getting rid of Chinatown altogether. The scary thing is that this idea of raising Chinatown was more than just a property developer's pipe dream. In June, the Board of Health actually made plans to vacate 1,500 Chinese to Mission Rock, an island in the San Francisco Bay. And there were plans to vacate even more to Angel Island. Were they really planning to transport all the Chinese to the island so that they could burn Chinatown to the ground and rebuild it? We can only speculate about their motivations for vacating the Chinese, but the possibility of Chinatown being burnt to the ground was a very real fear for the Chinatown community. When the plague surfaced in Honolulu's Chinatown earlier that year, health officials had set about burning down contaminated buildings, but on a windy day, the fire quickly spread and burned the entire neighborhood to the ground, leaving thousands homeless. So the Chinese community in San Francisco was definitely on their guard to prevent what happened in Honolulu from happening to them. Obviously, Chinatown still exists in San Francisco, so these attempts to get rid of them were unsuccessful. But the physical landscape of Chinatown was certainly transformed in the city's response to the plague. Earlier, Sam and Elliot brought up the idea of epidemic logic, which is the idea that disease justifies actions on the part of government that would in normal times be seen as invasive and unacceptable. And I think that's a good way to understand the sanitary measures implemented in Chinatown that we're about to get into. So even though you had all this intense opposition to the Board of Health's quarantine, and even to the idea that plague existed in San Francisco at all. One thing that almost everyone agreed on was that Chinatown needed to be cleaned up, if not to address a public health threat, just to preserve San Francisco's reputation. And even Chinatown's leaders agreed to let the city inspect and scrub down the neighborhood. It wasn't that they necessarily agreed that they were a threat, but they recognized that suspicion of plague could seriously damage their business, and they wanted to avoid another quarantine situation. And so for the next four years, they mostly complied with the increasingly invasive cleansings that became a central part of life in Chinatown during this time. The first step the Board of Health took right after Wing Chun Ging was discovered and throughout the spring and summer of 1900 was to send out a team of medical inspectors to do house-to-house -house inspections and disinfect buildings. They also brought out this street and sewer fumigator, which was this new gadget that basically pumped sulfur fumes through all the sewers. I think that this is a good place to point out that we've been talking about Chinatown in the singular so far, but there were actually a lot of divisions within the community between the wealthier merchants and diplomats who were the leadership and the laborers. And it's a lot harder to know what Chinese laborers were thinking because their voices were rarely recorded in print. But what we do know is that not all the laborers were equally willing to comply with the city's measures. They didn't necessarily agree with the merchants and diplomats who wanted to cooperate with the Board of Health and allow their private spaces to be inspected and fumigated. Many of them believed that the city was trying to poison them. And so there was this threat by a group of Chinese to destroy the fumigator, and a guard had to be posted to protect it. This was a pretty tense time in Chinatown. 
But these initial sanitary measures were mild compared to what the city did in 1901, after a federal commission had confirmed several more cases of plague. During this phase, hundreds of residents of infected buildings had their belongings removed and burned. Then the buildings would be fumigated, hosed down, and chemically purged. We don't know what kind of long-term health effects the use of all these chemicals might have had, but there's no doubt it was unpleasant at the very least. But even this was not as dramatic as the third and final phase of sanitary reform in 1903. At that point, public health officials were finally starting to catch on to the role of the rat in the spread of disease. So they decided that sanitation wasn't enough. Parts of Chinatown had to be demolished. And so a gang of men descended upon Chinatown with axes to knock out the balconies in the back of buildings and other structures that were deemed unsanitary. By October of that year, 160 buildings had been condemned and knocked to the ground. haunting really, especially when you look at how we left off with the fires in Hong Kong. It's fascinating to see the historical connections between public health and city dynamics in times like these, but I feel like we covered a lot here. We definitely have. So when all said and done, what do the epidemics in San Francisco and Hong Kong tell us? I think for starters, they show us how the state exerted power in times of crisis at the turn of the 20th century by altering the built environment and spatially disciplining populations. In this case, East Asian city dwellers in the name of the public good. Even though we've seen that this public didn't include everyone in the urban sphere, the perceived safety of the white urban public came to depend on controlling the environments of Asian residents, or in the case of Taiping Shan, obliterating them altogether. Epidemic logic was crucial for accomplishing this in both cities. I'm still thinking about what Nyan Shah wrote. The specter of epidemic pushed forms of regulatory intervention into the lives of bodies and populations which might, in other circumstances, appear excessive. On top of that, we also see science trying to keep up with the unfolding epidemics as people try to stem the spread of disease. Even in cases where the scientific evidence was there, it was often overshadowed by social theories and prejudices, a tricky dance between science, politics, and society that we still see today. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. This show was written and produced by Sam Needleman, Ellie Story, Caroline Crowell, and myself, Jack Hippus. Voices for primary source quotes provided by Gavin Shaw, Luke Nicholson, and Audrey G. Thanks to Professor James Colgrove of Columbia's Mailman School of Public Health for the interview. And a big thanks to our Professor Amy Chaskill for her guidance and support along the way. Hope you enjoyed. <laughs>